What's going on, Cynthia? It's been a strange day and getting stranger. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Tatum. And I'm Geneva. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Okay, here we go. Actually, wait. Oh. I'm just going to get myself a little drink of wine, clear the throat. Oh, wine? You're drinking wine? Not wine, water. Oh, it's like wow, Geneva's getting super, um, just relaxed today. It's gonna be such a chill <laughs> record for such a not film movie. She didn't take notes. She's drinking wine. We're really uh, just going with just the giving. yeah. Just we're going with just stream of consciousness today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, very on brand with the movie. All okay, right. here we go. <clears throat> So we are back for another week of uh, this wonderful podcast. So yeah, uh, Geneva, can, do you want to get us started off and just tell us uh, if there's anything fun you've been watching this week? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I don't know about fun, but I did <laughs> just watch <laughs> um, one of those movies where as you're watching it, you're kind of like, this is okay. This is not the greatest, but then the way it ends kind of sticks in your mind a little bit. And so I ended up rating it, I think, a little bit higher than I would have um, you know, in my mind um, than I would have when it first started, if that makes sense. You know, it kind of ended on a really good note. Sorry, I should say the movie is um, Grand Hotel, which is from 1932. It was a very early Best Picture winner. It won... I think it was the the fifth Academy Awards ever. <laughs> it won the best award for best picture. And it's a star-studded movie for the time. It's Greta Garbo. It's a very a, a young Joan Crawford, um, synecdoche with uh, last week's episode. And uh, John Barrymore, Lionel Barrymore. Um, <clears throat> and it's structurally, it's very similar to like a, um, a Magnolia or a Gosford Park or something like that, where there's, um, it follows five characters, more or less, who are all staying at this one hotel at the same time. And they're all different kind of careers, social classes, and their stories kind of run parallel to each other until they finally intersect at the end. And yeah, I, it was I, I would say it's not kind of, you know, um, you know, it's not a huge like all time classic. You need to see this movie type of thing. Um, it's not visually. I think it's not the most interesting. I I've kind of would love to see a remake, actually, that makes more um, use of kind of the the setting of a grand hotel. It's kind of just a lot of like really beautiful 1930s rooms, but not a whole lot of you know interesting camera work or anything like that. But um yeah, just the the stories of the the characters and their stories, I ended up really enjoying. You know, jo- Joan Crawford plays this sort of independent career woman, and there's a really nice kind of complexity. There are kind of really nice layers to her character, where she is this sort of woman of the world who's not a, you know, she's very free, she's very liberated, um, she's willing to, you know, sleep around if that'll 
kind of help her career and help her goals of getting out of the country and traveling. But she's also this woman who has this big, really big heart and um, forms this really sweet friendship with this man who is dying. And, um, and that, that character who the man who's dying, his, you know, he starts out kind of like a, a goofy, like comedic character, which sounds very strange, but the idea is that he's, um, he's come to this, ho he's kind of a, a you know, a, a working man who comes to this hotel and he's like, I only have a little time left to live. So I'm going to live it up. I'm going to spend all my money <laughs> that I saved. And so for a lot of the movie, he's this kind of comedic character who's just like, oh, I'm going to go dancing for the first time. I'm going to go gambling for the first time. You know, I'm going to get drunk for the first time, stuff like that. But then by the end, his, the way his character's story ends up working out, it's this really sweet, hopeful grace note. Um, so anyway, yeah, all that, all that to say is, um yeah I ended up really I enjoying the movie by the end um so yeah if any of that sounds kind of intriguing or you'd love to see an early Greta Garbo performance or um or uh sorry not early Greta Garbo or early Joan Crawford performance uh if you want to see Greta Garbo go full Garbo be very <laughs> dramatic and um you know sort of or uh suffering in a beautiful way which is Garbo's specialty um yeah, check it out. Were there any, did you notice any big similarities between that movie and the Grand Budapest Hotel? Or are their names just completely coincidentally similar? I would have to see the Grand Budapest Hotel again to <clears throat> to really give you an answer on that. Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, is a little more focused on the people who work at the hotel, whereas Grand Hotel is more focused on the um, um, the people who are staying there. Um, I mean, this, there's a similarity just in the setting and that it's a, you know, this a grand hotel. hotel. Yeah. In like, in, you know, in some sort of European country. Um, but yeah, I, it's been a long time since I've seen Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't remember a whole lot of the actual plot. I just remember kind of, you know, Ray Fiennes and the other characters sort of running around. <laughs> I mean, so. that's like 80% of the movie. Not that I'm complaining. I love that film, but right, yeah. a lot of running around. <laughs> <laughs> anything yeah, so what else about you? What have you been oh yeah um so i'm just gonna kind of briefly list off a couple things because i've seen four movies in the last week uh because i think we've mentioned before that these episodes we recorded months ago so uh or weeks ago i don't know time what even is time but <laughs> um <laughs> it's time? we're currently in like the <clears throat> the the weeds not the weeds but we're in the depths of just oscar season right now and so all of the movies yes. that need to be seen are out and i'm seeing them but anyway so in the last week i have seen the whale uh darren aronofsky film i've seen babylon which is uh directed by damien chazelle i've seen bardo first chronicle of a handful of truths which is directed by alejandro Iñárritu, and women talking which is directed by sarah Polly, i think is her name um, so those, <laughs> that's what I've been watching in the briefest form. I won't go nice. into a description of all four of those, but I will say that, um, <clears throat> Brendan Fraser's performance in The Whale is one of the best performances I've seen mm. in years. Um, I can't necessarily highly recommend the, the film. Uh, I, I mean, the story isn't bad, but I think it can be pretty, pretty on the nose at times, 
Darren Aronofsky has a tendency, in my opinion, to kind of hit you over the head with, this is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) And uh, I think that's definitely true in this movie. But that being said, I think that the acting is phenomenal. And for Brendan Fraser's performance alone, it's worth watching. Um, And from what I remember, it's not that long. So it's not like a huge commitment, I guess. Um, And then Babylon... So Babylon is a movie where I was not looking forward to seeing it. I kind of went begrudgingly to the theater because I was just thinking, okay, this movie is going to be nominated for Best Picture, so I guess I have to watch it, but I don't really feel like watching a three-hour movie of just debauchery and no story and blah, 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 blah. Which is exactly where I am right now. Yeah. Uh, And just like the casting is weird. No one looks like they existed in the 1920s and blah, blah, blah. Um. Yeah, I absolutely loved this film. I was blown away by it. Um, It's my list. Well, I guess now that I've seen women talking, my list for the year is actually complete. Mm. So, um, yeah, this movie is my number four film of the year. Uh, I love this film. I think it's worth seeing. Uh, If it is still in theaters by the time you're listening to this, which I think it should be, this is a movie that needs to be seen in the theater. Um, Don't... I would say go by yourself. Uh, like don't don't go see it with your parents or uh, I was gonna say your. You kids, mean I shouldn't but drag my uh, my mom to see this movie? With no, me? Uh, no, I would not <laughs> recommend seeing this with any family member or any friends. I, I, see it by see it by yourself. Um, but that being said, I think it has some really really beautiful themes. Damien Chazelle has a lot to say, um, and I think I just don't necessarily agree with the discourse that's happening around this film I think a lot of people are um not enjoying it for whatever reasons um that I disagree with but uh if Geneva ends up seeing it I would love to hear her thoughts uh shared on this podcast but 100% worth seeing uh and if you are over the age of 17 you can get into the theater go see this movie (laughs) um yeah and then Bardo uh yeah I love Alejandro Añaritu in yet too, but um <clears throat> this film was not uh was not my favorite. I felt like the the visuals were fantastic. Uh I thought it looked beautiful. I thought the acting was great. Um I felt like it was ambitious. But at the same time, uh I, I don't mind long movies, but this movie really dragged for me. Um it just felt like Inyaritu just he just had something he wanted to say, but didn't really care who was listening because he just needed to process his life, which is fine. Um, but I just don't necessarily feel like it's something that I will ever watch again. Um, so I'll just say that briefly. <laughs> you're, you're generally an Inuritu, Inuritu fan, right? You you um, like Birdman a lot. You like The Revenant a lot. Um, yeah, more or less. I mean, his movies can be hit or miss for me. Um, I like Beautiful. I like uh, Birdman is a fantastic film, in my opinion. I know people, I, I know for certain people it hasn't aged well. Um, the Revenant, I, I'm not as thrilled about it now as I was when it first came out. I think visually it's stunning. Um, and my boy Leonardo DiCaprio's in it and Tom Hardy's in it and all those things. Um, but it's not really a movie that I think is like story-wise great. I don't think it's bad, but it's just like, oh, revenge. Cool. Yeah, it's much so. more. That movie was much more kind of style over substance for me. It's beautifully. Yeah. It looks beautiful. It's beautifully Absolutely. made. But the, the story is not, does not really reach the level of the acting and the the visuals 
Yeah, Emmanuel Lubezki, who's the um, the cinematographer for that movie, just goes all out. Also, the score for that movie is fantastic. Um, but yeah, for the sake of not talking much longer about this, um, <laughs> yeah, the last movie, I, which I mentioned, I actually literally just got back from watching this movie uh, less than an hour ago. <laughs> um, I was telling Geneva that I needed to like take a few minutes before starting re- hosting this episode because I was was just thinking, oh, I need to process what what I just watched because that was, oh boy, that made me feel lots of things. Um, I think that this is a movie that is, um, it's very quiet. I think a lot of people are probably not going to see it uh, because it's just, it literally is the title. It's a bunch of women sitting in a room talking. Um, It's not entertaining. It's not fun. It's, it's, it's a hard watch, but I think it's beautiful. And I think that this is a movie that, in my opinion, every male over the age of 13 should see. I think that if you are a male that is 14 through whatever age, you should watch this movie. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's Women Talking. Those are the movies that I've seen. And I am officially done with my, with my movie list for 2022. Good job. So... Yeah. Yeah, Women I can... Talking is the last one that's on my list. Um, I'm hoping to get to see it maybe tomorrow, maybe in the next week or two. It's not playing very close to me, unfortunately. It's uh, not a very wide release. But I'm glad to hear that you liked it because I'm, I'm really, really intrigued by it. Yeah, I mean, again, I can't say I liked it because it's not really a movie that you come yeah. out and you're like, oh, <laughs> wow, I liked that movie. Right. I had a good like... time watching that, yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a very... Uh... It's a very relevant film, and I think it's uh, it's very – I was going to say educating, but that doesn't sound grammatically correct. Um, yeah, I just think it talks about some really important themes and teaches some important lessons that uh, all of us should just learn from. And I think one of the things I appreciated about it is that it can be a very bleak um, – very bleak film, but the ending, in my opinion, is very hopeful. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a spoiler, but <laughs> if it is, I'm sorry. Um, well, it's but, a spoiler that makes me hopeful about my experience of watching yeah. it. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm sure that someone could look at it with an opinion of it's actually not hopeful at all. Um, but the way that I interpreted it was okay. th- there is a brighter future ahead. So, but yeah, that's just my opinion. So anyway, um, let's, yeah, let's very nice. I'm yeah. very excited to see women talking. I think that is the last one that I have, you know, I, I, that I definitely want to see for 2022, apart from my hopefully beloved Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, which I still have not seen <laughs> and still convinced that it's going to be my film of the year. <laughs> it's a perfect intersection of all my interests, but I am planning on seeing any one of those movies, uh, if they get nominated for the Oscars, but otherwise, I'm not really planning on seeking isn't, out the whale or Babylon or. Isn't Tar still on your list? Oh, Tar! Dang it! Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's my number two film Tar. of the year. Yeah, yes. Tar is great. Very excited to see Tar. Very mad that I missed it in theaters. So oh, hopefully, I'll yeah. get to see it, catch up with it soon. Kate Blanchett, love her to death. Mm-hmm. I will watch anything that she's in. Um, it was anyway. funny. I just rewatched, as you know, Tatum, I just rewatched uh, the last two um, Lord of the Rings movies. Um, just dang, Kate Blanchett really has not changed <laughs> in 20 years. It's pretty she looks incredible. exactly the same. It's pretty the same incredible. ethereal goddess. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah. Unless she's like intentionally trying to look old for a role like in Benjamin Button or something. But yeah, she yeah. Oh, she has aged with such such grace and mm-hmm. yeah, her and well, Meryl it's because Street she's a thousand just... year old elf. You know? <laughs> right. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I yeah, I won't go crazy, crazy in depth about this, but I am very glad that you've watched Two Towers and Return of the King. That makes me very, very happy. Uh, but I will refrain from saying more because I will. Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to talk about it because those movies, <clears throat> they get me going and I won't stop. <laughs> um Save it yeah. for our uh, four-hour uh, Lord of the Rings pod. Yeah. So that actually comes into a good segue because, so, spoiler alert, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the, those are my favorite movies of all time. Uh, hands down, judge me all you want. I think that they're some of the greatest films ever made and they're my favorite films of all time. Um, speaking of another movie that is one of my favorite films of all time, <laughs> today we are talking about the movie Mulholland Drive, uh, which is a film that I love. So yeah, uh, just to dive into things. Uh, so David Lynch's psychological thriller came out in 2001 and Lynch initially wrote Mulholland Drive as a pilot, uh, as a pilot episode for a TV series. However, after being rejected by several studios, he created an ending for the story that allowed it to be a feature film. The film eventually found a home with Universal Pictures and was released on October 19th of 2001. The movie tells the story of Betty, who arrives in Los Angeles with the dream of becoming an actress. She meets Rita, who stumbles upon her house after surviving a car crash. Things begin to unravel and reality begins to slip as the two fall deeper and deeper into a world of dreamy mystery. So, uh, first of all, I'm very proud of that little blurb of a plot summary that I wrote. I wrote that and I was like, ah, maybe I could have a career (laughs) in writing. And then I was like, no, it's probably not that good compared to what other people have written. But anyway, it's great, especially considering how hard this movie is to sum up plot wise. Yeah, this is the second movie I've chosen. That's just arguably there is no plot. So (laughs) I (laughs) I mean, it's just yeah, it's there well there there are multiple plots going on <laughs> so geneva on that note go ahead and kick us off uh what are your overall thoughts on this movie yeah so well to give a little bit of backstory on my history with this movie <clears throat> this is my first time or second time seeing Mulholland Drive i first watched it in college it was assigned for a um an english class and this was when I was first starting to get into film and I was not very knowledgeable about it yet. I did not really know anything about David Lynch or what his vibe was, what his, um, you know, kind of his his interests and themes were, you know, the sort of surrealism of his style. I had no idea what to expect. The experience of watching it was honestly a little bit traumatic if you were at- <laughs> pretty sheltered college student who does not know <laughs> what to expect. I just remember watching it in my dorm room all alone. My roommate was out. Oh no. It was at night. <laughs> and oh, then no. the scene, which I'd forgotten how early this happens in the movie, the scene where um the the, the famous the jump man scare. sees the yes, the the man behind the dumpster. Um yeah, I it was terrifying. <laughs> I think that kind of set my um my feelings toward the rest of the movie like that was not (laughs) I I wouldn't say I had a negative reaction to the movie so much as I just did not know what to make of it I was just baffled by it you know and I um 
baffled and a little traumatized by it. I remember I was, I finished it and I immediately went online and was just looking up interpretations of this movie, trying to figure out what does it mean? I don't understand what, this movie. What like, year would this have been, Geneva, that you watched it? This would have been, um, I'm going to say like 2013, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I think I was in uh, maybe junior year of college, somewhere around there, but um, not exactly sure. But um, yeah, and then I went to class the next day and I told my, you know, in, as part of our discussion, I told my professor, yeah, I was, you know, I was looking up online to see what people thought about the interpretations of this movie and this person thought this thing and this person thought this thing. And I just remember my professor looking at me like, went online? <laughs> With this look of like... <laughs> It's like halfway like that's cheating, and then halfway like wait, people do that. Of <laughs> course, go they do. Look up interpretations. Anyway, um, <clears throat> shout out to my English professor. Um, but anyway, yeah. So this movie had just in the years since then has been sort of a kind of a blur. Where I I actually rewatching it, I realized I remembered a lot of this movie. I remembered certain oh, interesting. scenes and images very clearly. But the actual kind of thrust of the plot was just this big jumbled mess because as I was watching it, I just had no idea what was watching, what I was watching. And then, you know, the the few threads of plot that you can kind of discern just completely change and go away in the last third of the movie. And all of a sudden, everything you thought was happening is not happening anymore. And yeah, it was just a very sort of surreal experience and it was very jumbled up in my mind. So I was really, really happy to have had a chance to rewatch it. It made a lot more sense to me this time around. And I think part of that is that I've uh, finally started watching Twin Peaks, uh, which I had not seen at that time. Um, and that's really classic, classic, really unlocked a lot of David Lynch and kind of what he's doing in this movie for me. He's very true to himself in everything that he does. He except is. Except for Dune, which he has since disowned. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I had no idea that this movie was originally intended as a TV series, which is fascinating because there are so many parallels that I, that I saw both visually and in terms of the, the themes that he's using in this movie between this and Twin Peaks. I thought this is, this movie is basically the story of Twin Peaks like you know the what he wants to discuss in Twin Peaks just distilled into a movie and set in a different location um but there's there's a lot of similarity in terms of kind of shadowy behind the scenes figures and um you know themes about um the exploitation exploitation of women and how you know they're viewed as these sort of interchangeable objects um and kind of imprisoned in um in in the this sort of patriarchal society in which they're in but anyway all that is to say is i really love this movie the second time oh around oh my gosh i did not I think did. that you're gonna say that <laughs> i did i really that really makes me it. so happy <laughs> yeah i yeah i think there's so much to to unpack um i think it's it's really beautifully written i the the direction is so is so interesting just the the number of um the amount of subjective camera work that he uses i think is really fascinating you know he's constantly putting you into the the shoes of naomi watts as she's experiencing all these things that are happening um and constantly kind of tracking around a room or um following a character's viewpoint as they're walking and it builds the suspense but it's also 
this sort of identification with the character. And then as things like begin to <laughs> fracture and make less and less sense, um, you know, he's kind of bringing you along on that journey. Um, so yeah, all that is to say, I, I really love that movie and I'm excited to talk about it. That I, I am so glad I was legitimately worried that I was going to put you through another, <laughs> another torture experience yeah. and you were just going to be like, Tatum, why did you do why this did you to make me, me do a this? second time? <laughs> it may um, have helped because I knew the, tra- the dumpster scene was coming. Yeah, it may have exactly. helped that I did not watch it all the way. Yeah. So uh, just to say briefly again, I guess, because I said this before, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love this film. I think I think it is a perfect movie. There is nothing about it that I would change. Not one thing. Um, I think and I was actually shocked yesterday when it finished because the movie was over and I looked at the clock and it was 930 and I was like, wait, what? That movie was two and a half hours. This movie, at least to me, I thought it was, it was over. And I was like, that had to have only been an hour. And I was like, what? Two and a half hours have gone by? That's crazy. Um, so yeah, I I love every minute of it. Um, and I actually did not see this movie for a long time. I think I saw it for the first time just a few years ago, maybe four years ago, because I entered into this phase of my life where I told myself, in order for me to consider myself a film person, these are all the movies that I have to watch. And so I made this list of like a hundred and something films and Mulholland Drive was on there. And I, I hadn't think I realized that that was when that you'd only watched it a few years ago when you were doing yeah. that list. I yeah. thought you'd seen it earlier than that. Oh, wow. No, I hadn't because for a really long time, honestly, up until I watched this movie, I just kept saying, I am not a fan of horror movies. I'm not a fan of horror movies. I don't understand why people like jump scares. I don't understand blah, 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 blah. And I don't want to deal with jump scares. They're freaky. And if you look anywhere online of, of just like the biggest jump scares to ever exist, this movie is on every single list. And so I was just like, I don't want to watch a movie that has the biggest jump scare of all time in it. I have no interest um, but then going through this list that I created, I just thought, okay, I have to watch this movie. And I did. And I just realized there is a whole other way that human experience can be expressed through cinema that I had never even seen. I'd never seen anything like this before. And it just excited me to just, it was like a new discovery of what the art form of film can do. And David Lynch is a genius. I just think that he is. Um, And this was the first thing of his that I'd ever seen. And I was so blown away by it that I then, you know, proceeded to watch Twin Peaks. I watched Eraserhead. I watched pretty much everything he's made. I think the only one I haven't seen is Elephant Man. Um, But yeah, it, it sent me on a David Lynch binge. And I think... There is nothing like the brain and the mind of David Lynch. And I think that this film in particular is his magnum opus. I think that it is his way of thinking being displayed in the most concise, the most artistic, the most creative, the most out there, the best acted. It's just everything about it is exceptional. Um, 
the, because David Lynch, the more of the more of his things that you watch, he does kind of have a lot of similar threads. You know, his his scores sound similar. His acting styles that he directs can be similar. And there's always cars driving in the dark down, you know, winding roads at night. But but I don't know. This film kind of incorporates them in a way that feels very unique to me. Uh, and it stands out from the rest of his filmography. Um, but yeah, so I, I love this film. Um, I think, yeah, there's, there's nothing like it out there. And I think that if you haven't seen it and you are just interested in seeing what the art form of cinema can do in a way that you've never seen before, um, go out and watch this film. Uh, I would say that this is another movie that you might not want to watch with your parents with your parents <laughs> there's a few scenes in here that are like okay uh yeah I'm glad I'm by myself uh but <laughs> but yeah it's yeah it's it's really good from top to bottom and I would not change a thing about it so yeah um yeah one thing that I uh came to mind while I was watching it which is an- another movie that we've talked about that I know that you love is Persona the um you know the, there's a lot of i think references to well i shouldn't say i think i know <laughs> there are a lot yes. of references to classic hollywood and um just the film history throughout this movie um which i always love as a big fan of film history um and there's a lot of persona in it there's a little bit of vertigo in it as well this um but persona specifically i i was thinking of in this idea of uh, these two women who their identities start to blur and start to bleed into each other and the way that the filmmaking is used to kind of um, communicate that level of um, kind of the the fracturing of identity. Um, Yeah. Is that sort of a theme that intrigues you in, in general? Cause I was just, I know persona is one of your favorite movies as well. And I was curious if that was one thing that you specifically connects the two and your love for them. Yeah. I, I mean, I tried to write a screenplay about <laughs> about that concept a few years ago. I started a whole i a whole idea of someone kind of their their understanding of themselves being fractured into multiple versions of themselves. And yeah, I think I started writing that after I watched this movie, and then after I watched Mulholland Drive, I it, it kind of opened my mind to oh, I actually do enjoy thrillers and horror movies, which then proceeded which then caused me to add more movies of that genre onto my list, one of which was Persona, which also, if you haven't seen Persona, it's a masterpiece directed <laughs> by Ingmar Bergman. Um, it, we will talk about that movie at some point, but I I realized this week that I do need to slow down a little bit because we kind of just started this podcast and we've already talked about two of my favorite movies of all time, but I don't want to like <laughs> go through all of them before, you know, I need to space them out. But um Yes, Persona is phenomenal, and I think that uh, this movie of Mulholland Drive, even though it is its own unique story and its own interpretation coming purely from David Lynch's brain that is just incredible. um, From the twisted mind. Yes, but in the best way. But I do think that this movie would not exist if Persona had not been made first. Um, So... Yeah, I oh, I can't wait to talk about Persona at some point. I just need to rewatch it in general. But yeah, it's definitely a theme that I love of just people kind of their minds splintering and becoming lots of different realities and them kind of losing grasp on what's real and what's not, but in kind of a, a thriller type of genre where things get 
weird and creepy and kind of suspenseful and and tense. So, yeah, thank you for drawing that connection because if you hadn't done it, I would have brought it up. So (laughs) you're very welcome. Um, Yeah. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and jump uh, more directly into the plot here. I will say that I had to kind of going into this movie, knowing what I was going to be watching, I tried to take very specific notes, not very specific, but I tried to write down each plot point as it came and went, because I knew that if I didn't write it down, I would forget that it ever happened (laughs) because that's kind of how this movie just works, which is beautiful. Um, and I love the fact that it's kind of set up like a dream and you wake up from dreams and you're kind of like, wait, I don't remember all the details, but I remember the feeling and I remember certain moments, but because this is a podcast and we have to talk about, uh, the different points of it, I wanted to make sure that I took notes. So, um, yeah, I'll just go through just a few of the starting things that I, the, the opening shots that we see for the movie. Um, the first one is, so the movie opens with kind of these people swing dancing uh, and they're kind of overlaid over each other. Some of them are silhouettes. Some of them are in real color and there's kind of this purple backdrop. Um, Going to be perfectly honest. I have no idea what that means. So there you go. Um. <laughs> well, um, Betty mentions that she won a swing dance contest Wait, and that what? brought her, got her into acting. Um, oh, I missed that. And so my assumption is that that's kind of setting the stage for the sort of, you know, you know, Betty's this sort of very archetypal, like, oh, sweet small town Americana woman moves to, um, you know, big Hollywood to make it in the movies. And so my assumption is that's kind of setting the stage for the, um, you know, the, the theoretical, backdrop to her character yeah I totally forgot that she ever mentioned that she uh did swing dancing so that makes sense thank you for enlightening me on that um this is why I love having (laughs) subtitles on because I'm constantly (laughs) seeing things that I otherwise would have missed yeah and I will also say uh I have not gone onto the internet and kind of looked up things of what does this mean and how do these things tie together so all of my interpretations and understanding of things come from my own brain. So there's probably things that I haven't connected that other people have because I haven't gone super in depth on it. But yes, and yeah. I have forgotten everything that I looked up on the internet. <laughs> disturbed yeah. and baffled my professor. So uh, <laughs> we'll yeah. just be going off of our own two brains. <laughs> there we go. Um, but yeah, so after the swing dancing, then we have this incredible short sequence of we just hear this this person breathing. And this camera kind of moving over these red bed sheets very slowly. And then it's over a red pillow. And then it kind of zooms into the pillow and the screen goes black. And the movie starts and it's kind of, you just wonder, okay, what, why, what? (laughs) And then that bed does come back in later. Um, That's the bed that the dead body is found on, which then is no longer a dead body because then it becomes Betty and then it becomes, you know, it's just like, I don't know. Then it becomes a dead body again, so. Right. So, um, but yeah, so we have that, that red, uh, that opening shot of the red bed. And then after that, we have, like I mentioned before, the very classic David Lynch shot of a car driving down a winding road at night. And this is kind of when we um, start to learn a little bit about uh, Rita's storyline of her, which, then becomes Betty's storyline later yes. on in the movie. <laughs> Can we even say that Rita exists or Betty exists? Um, does it even matter, you know? Um, but 
Yeah, so this car driving down the road and, um, you know, this whole story of these men, they're driving her and then they turn around and they, they, they're basically threatening her. They're going to shoot her while she's on her way to some event. But then these teens drive by and then there's a car crash and then Rita goes wandering down this hill with a concussion. She doesn't know where she's going and she ends up at, um, at just, she ends up sleeping outside of a mansion on the ground. Um, uh, I think it's an apartment complex. Oh, yeah, you're right, because Coco has to... Oh, Coco. Love Coco. Coco. Um, Played by the wonderful <laughs> Ann Miller, star of uh, yes. 1950s, some of my favorite 1950s musicals. Yeah. Geneva, I actually wanted to ask you, so in that opening section, there is um, there is a very clear shot of the camera just showing a street sign that says Sunset Boulevard. Did you happen to draw any connection to the movie Sunset Boulevard in this film and maybe some reason as to why there would be a specific shot of that street sign i asked because i know you're a huge fan of sunset boulevard so <laughs> yeah it actually that's a that's an interesting question because um i i would i didn't think specifically of that movie when i was you know as i was watching it, i was more thinking of sunset boulevard as the very famous hollywood landmark you know sunset boulevard mm-hmm. is just this very famous street in in hollywood where um Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of famous uh, businesses and restaurants and clubs and things like that have been along it. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of there's just thematic similarity in this idea of Los Angeles and Hollywood as this sort of this dream factory with this dark underbelly, which I mean, granted, is <laughs> most movies made about <laughs> oh, Hollywood. <right>. Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> someone should be really revolutionary and uh, subversive and make a movie about uh, Hollywood and how it's all great and there's nothing bad ever. Well, Damien Chazelle also did that with La La Land, I feel like. Oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of true. She got everything she wanted and became a star. Except for love, I guess. But she did... Anyway, we're not going to talk about La La Land. (laughs) Yeah. We don't have time to go into La La Land. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Continue. Yeah, so... Yeah, I guess I just wasn't sure if you had any particular insight into that since you've seen Sunset Boulevard. I've literally only seen Sunset Boulevard, I think, twice. Yeah. So, Well, Sunset Boulevard, um, also a story about a guy who... A woman person, losing her mind. <laughs> a woman losing her mind, yeah. The loss of identity that kind of comes with um, fame and striving for fame and um, and a person randomly stumbling across a scene in which a like a sort of a t- decaying mansion in which, you know, people drama is played out um, where, you know, image and um, identity are increasingly blurred. And anyway, yeah, I think I, there's a lot of thematic, I think, parallels you could draw. But again, yeah. Sunset Boulevard is just this kind of symbol of Hollywood in general, which is the movies mm-hmm. we're interested in exploring. Yeah. Um, okay, so after we see Rita stumbling down the hill, then we go to the uh, the famous scene of the man and his therapist, I don't know, sitting in a diner. I was wondering about their relationship, too. Are they co-workers? I, Are they friends? I feel like it's a therapist or something, but then why would they be meeting outside of an office? But also, this is a dream, so it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, so he's he's sitting there with his therapist, and... Man, I wanted to just like read the entire monologue of everything that he says, but that would take a super long time. Um, but needless to say, I absolutely I love this sequence. I think I just love how it's this man and he's saying all of these really insightful and yet also 
eerily creepy things. And we're all trying to figure it out because at this point in the beginning of the movie, right, we're all we're all wondering like, okay, what is the plot of this movie? How do all of these things tie together? And so we're really paying attention to everything that he's saying so that we can put the puzzle pieces together to figure out the plot. But it kind of is almost nonsense, but it's also not. I, I don't know. I think we just get this. We get this kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not microscope. Uh, what's the? Oh yeah, we get this kind of magnifying glass into this guy's life immediately, and clearly he's troubled. But it also kind of hints from the very beginning that this is a dream because he's talking about a dream of I've been here twice before and you were standing at the cash register and then eventually that happens where he is standing at the cash register and then they go out and he's like I see this man behind the corner and then the guy's like let's go prove that it's not that he's not there then they go and he's there so I just feel like it's playing with this idea from the very beginning of is this a dream or is this not um, well, I love I love any time in a movie where a character has some sort of a a dream or a vision or something like that, and then it immediately starts to come true in ways that you wouldn't expect. And so, you know, he says, I was sitting here, you were standing over there, I could see that you were scared. And then the guy says, that's nonsense. But then he goes to get up to pay. He's suddenly standing in the spot where he said, and when he when he turns and they look at each other, you can see they're both afraid. Yeah. And you know, and then they, they both go know outside. what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can both tell that they're fulfilling this this prophecy, and yet there's they're kind of powerless to stop it. And so, you know, when they when they have that uh, finally see the the man behind the dumpster, and the guy who had the the dream has this apparently heart attack and dies. It it's almost this question of is it a it's a very self-fulfilling thing. You know, did he actually see it and this thing did something to him or did he cause himself to, um, you know, to have this heart attack? Is it you know, the fear? Fear itself is the thing that killed him in a way. And what I love about it too is, I mean, you keep calling it a dream for me. I took it in more of a sort of supernatural direction. You know, it kind of this idea of, a prophecy, a vision, you know, of the future. And it's sort of foreboding this sense of evil that's kind of hidden in the heart of LA, um, which again, kind of a Twin Peaks. Um, you know, I was definitely thinking of Bob while I was, hmm. while I was watching this. I've, granted, uh, by the way, I have not finished Twin Peaks. I'm still in the midst of it, but um, it seemed to be a very Bob-like figure. Um, but yeah, I took it in a very kind of supernatural direction which then puts an interesting stamp on the rest of the movie because there is this kind of yeah kind of mystical element of it i mean it's dreamlike but it is also yeah kind of interesting to see in that mystical sense that's so interesting because i i feel like this sequence even more solidifies for me that it that it is a dream but we don't really know how or why because i don't think that it's him well i mean i don't I don't claim to know anything. I mean, David Lynch is. <laughs> I'm has sure very there are famously, many ways you can interpret. Yeah, the ending. David Lynch has very famously never revealed, not even to his actors, what this movie is about. He has not told anyone. So all of this is pure speculation, and I think that's part of the beauty of it. Everyone can have their own interpretation. Um, but I think that this whole sequence proves that he is in a dream because he's basically 
living the dream that he just said was a dream, which in my opinion makes you think, well, he's not living this at all. He's just in another dream. This is his third time dreaming the same dream. So it's not real. So yeah, I mean, which doesn't mean there can't be a, a yeah. fantastical experience within that as well, because that does happen in dreams. But to me, it just further, it, it this is the start of reality starting to just break apart if there ever was a reality to begin with. Right. When you say it's a dream, is your interpretation that this is, he is dreaming the rest of the movie or that this is the dream of Diana and this is like, or Di, uh, Diane, um, Diane Selwyn, and this is part of the dream that she's having. Do you have an idea of whose dream I is? don't know. I don't know who the dreamer is, in my opinion. I just think that, honestly, I think that the the audience is the dreamer. I think that that's who the dreamer is supposed to be. We're just making up these characters and these people and we're, our brain is just creating it. So I think that we're supposed to be the dreamers. But I think in this particular sequence, this man, it, I guess it's like Inception. Like this is a dream within my own dream. Like this man is repeatedly having this same dream and he's in that dream again right now because each time he's talked about being in a dream, he's been in the same diner talking about being, you know, so it's just like a repetitive cycle of him doing that again and again, which I love. Um, Yeah. And I also love how um, the end of this sequence, I feel like One of the reasons I absolutely love the jump scare, which I will say, I still can't watch it. Like I, I know that I know the timestamp. So I'm like, I'm going to put it on mute. I'm going to like cover part of my eyes. So we only see half of the screen because I'm like, I don't. This is why it's really nice to have glasses because I can just (laughs) push down my glasses and then it's fuzzy and then it's, you can tell what's going (laughs) on, but you can't fully see it. (laughs) But I also think that that's a testament to how, how well crafted this jump scare is the fact that even when you know the exact moment that it's coming, it's still absolutely terrifying. Um, But yeah, I I love the, because I think a lot of times in jump scares in movies, it's just kind of like for the factor of, Oh, I want the audience to be scared or whatever, which people could argue with me on that. And that's fine. But I feel like here it's so, it's so purposeful in the sense that, for the rest of the movie, we have all of these shots of the camera going around corners very slowly, but like in the same exact way that the camera goes around the corner in this opening sequence. And so I feel like it establishes this, this feeling of uneasiness that carries throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, you're because, constantly wondering, is that character hiding in Yes, is, is there a monster around the corner, like mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the is film? Is it going to pop out again? Yeah, and I feel like that tone is, or, or that, that moment establishes the tone for the rest of the movie, which helps create your entire experience of the whole thing. And it I creates think that your it's so of well it. done. Yeah, it creates your sense of unease throughout the rest of the movie. And also, I think just thematically, even if we don't see it, that monster is hidden in every mm-hmm. room, you know, because at least to me, my interpretation of it is that this monster is a sort of physical manifestation of the rot at the heart of Hollywood. And so there is a sense in which he is in every room, you know, he is hidden behind every corner because he's this sort of. Yeah, this kind of the the shadow, the gremlin, the the Dorian Gray painting on the wall, you know, this, you know, thing that represents the the dark underbelly of what's happening in every every corner, every room. Mhm. Yeah, I 
I love that interpretation. I feel like I feel like for me, I never try to attach any like, like actual meaning to this to this movie. It's just kind of like I'm here for the ride. I'm here for the vibes. I'm here for the experience. So it's really um, it's really fascinating for me for me to hear your just how you're interpreting it and how you are attaching some sort of reality to this or some sort of um, I don't know, like some sort of a lesson that, or not lesson, but just like, mm-hmm. I don't know, well, like, like a I've, reason why this movie exists. And <laughs> yeah, I'm just well, I came like, away very interestingly, you know, I mentioned the, the first time I watched it, I was just baffled. I had like no idea what was happening. This time I came away with a very clear, like, I, not every single moment is accounted for, but a very clear, like, okay, this part was a dream. This part is the reality. This is the character transposing this thing into this thing. Um, you know, here's the, it's like dream reality. And then the kind of supernatural abstract representational elements. And in my mind, those three things are working together at different points. And yeah, I feel like I came away with kind of a pretty strong, like, okay, I feel like I know what this movie is about. And I feel like I know what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's also, you know, this movie is, not built for you know clear interpretations so I think interpretations could definitely vary yeah I mean I think yeah that kind of alludes to what I was saying before of I think the audience is the dreamer and so we can kind of just interpret it however we want and I think it's just beautiful hearing both of our opinions because our brains and the way that you and I process movies you know they're very different and so for you even in the way that you, so Geneva, before she watches things, a lot of the time she's like, I'm going to go to Wikipedia and look up the plot because I have to know what I'm getting into because I, I don't want deal to know. Well with suspense. Yeah. yeah. She's like, I want to know what's happening. Whereas I'm like, I don't want to know what's happening. I don't really care. I just want the movie to take me to that place. And so I feel like for you and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's, it seems like you're kind of, in order for you to process it, it's kind of like, okay, I want to put the puzzle pieces together and really figure out and analyze what's happening here and what's real and what's not. Whereas I'm like, I don't really freaking care. I just want to like, <laughs> I just want to feel the feels and I love the journey that this is taking me on. And it doesn't matter whether or not it makes sense because I, because I don't care. Um, and yeah, I, I think that both both experiences are entirely valid, and I'm sure that there are hundreds of other experiences out there with this movie because it's so. That's one of the things that's so special about this film. It really just lends itself to however people want to consume it, and I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I need to craft some sort of narrative and some sort of meaning, um, to the best that I that I can. But I also think that my particular interpretation is very subjective and there's a there are a lot of layers in this movie there are different things you can get out of it or you could just intentionally eschew actually trying to interpret it and just enjoy it which seems to be the way that you approach it and that's completely valid as well yeah um so moving forward a little bit we have to get to uh We've already spent like 20 minutes talking or 30 minutes, however long it's been. And we're not even like more than five minutes into the movie. So um, let's start getting into the after Betty's arrival and and just what happens after she lands in L.A. and gets off the plane and begins her journey there. Um, I just want to say, I think my favorite 
my absolute favorite moment in this entire movie mm-hmm. is what after Betty gets off the plane and she gets in the the limo or taxi or whatever it is when the old woman and the old man yes. are sitting in the back of yes. that limo or whatever it is that I remember the first time I saw this movie when that happened because up until that point it's kind of like okay, this woman, she was in a car crash. Now the police are trying to find her. And there's this guy who was in a diner, but I'm sure that'll come together at some point. Like, okay, and now we're meeting this character. Let's see how this all comes together. But then when I saw those two people in the back of that car, I was like, I don't know what the fuck is is happening here. <laughs> I was like, I, I am completely, and it still gets me. I think that it is such a, I just love that shot. I love their faces. I love yeah, the direction it's so, of like so unsettling. Ah. The sort of the way it holds on them as they're doing these, you know, unnaturally wide, creepy smiles, ah. and it just gets. She's so like patting his hand in a super disturbing. weirdly aggressive way. Yeah, they're way. like they're like these two robots that you know yes. they only exist to usher Betty into yes. this this city and you know make make it seem like everything is bright and fine and she's going to do well and everything's great and then as soon as they leave she kind of she leaves they kind of shut down like you know they're they're just these two creepy yeah beings that only exist to you know put on this bright face on this world and then yeah it's just ugh, yeah it's so good it's so it's good i'm so glad you good. pointed it's that brilliant. out it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant um, and I also remember the first time I watched this movie, and because again, this was the first David Lynch anything that I'd seen. I was like, what is up with Naomi Watts's acting? Like, why is she talking? What? I know she's a better actress than this. Why is she talking in such a telephone book, I'm Miss Barbie sort of way? And little did I know that like, In my opinion, this is one of her best performances she's ever given. I think that she was absolutely robbed of an Oscar nomination. Um, I think that this performance is absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. I think it's, speaking of magnum opuses, I think that this could be her, it's just phenomenal. But I just remember the opening of this and just being introduced to so, just this way that David Lynch likes to direct a lot of his characters And um, I just think it does such a good job of just further establishing that this is not the real world. There's something else going on here. And maybe all of these people are kind of avatars. We don't know. So I I love that. Just kind of throws you in there. Just like, yep, this is the world and this is how she talks and figure it out if you want. Yeah. Well, and I I heard this story once, which I mean – don't quote me on this. I did not do any any further research into this. <laughs> but my understanding is that when David Lynch was casting this movie, he had not seen anything that Naomi Watts had done. And he basically just cast her because she had the right look. And he didn't I think that's cast true. Her. Yeah. yeah, he didn't cast her with any reference to actual acting ability. And the character was kind of designed so that acting ability would not really be necessary. But then when she showed up, it turns out, what do you know? Naomi <laughs> Watts is phenomenal. a fantastic actress. <laughs> Yes, And it's so interesting. It it adds this amazing layer to this movie because, again, sorry to go back to Twin Peaks, but one of the things I love about Twin Peaks that I find really interesting about David Lynch's style is that a lot of the acting in Twin Peaks, I would say, is not very strong, but I think it's designed to be that way. There is this kind of 
soap opera equality to it, which, and I don't say that as a negative because it's an intentional design, but a lot of the the actors are kind of wooden, um, a little bit theatrical in certain ways. And I could see that being the original intention for this character, where she is this more kind of um, over the top kind of, you know, uh, you know, theatrical character or something like that but because Naomi Watts is a phenomenal actress she ends up you know she can perfectly adapt to the tone that David Lynch is trying to bring out of her you know he's he's intentionally trying to create this sort of you know oh gee golly shucks (laughs) you know I'm just a small girl girl from small town Americana and I just stepped off the plane and everything's great you know he's he wants that to be the character but then as the movie goes on, she's able to bring out all of these different layers. And um, and then she's, you know, perfectly able to handle the transition to a very different type of character that's much more embittered and, and jaded at the end. And yeah, I just, I, I can't say enough good things about how great Naomi Watts is in this movie. I wish she's had, she'd had more opportunities to show off that range. But yeah, she's phenomenal here. Yeah, I feel like this movie is just a perfect marriage between a director and an actor. I feel like you can, and this is, again, pure speculation, but I feel like you can see Naomi Watts being stretched and inspired by David Lynch. But I feel like you can also see David Lynch being stretched and and inspired by Naomi Watts. And, you know, speaking of the ways that Lynch likes to direct his actors, I think a lot of his actors are like that in several of his movies, like Eraserhead. It's I mean, it's it's the whole movie is people standing in rooms and just being like, hello. Oh, OK. I you know, he, he just I think that that's just how he likes to direct his actors because it works perfectly for his stories. And again, I will keep saying this, but I don't know. I can't prove this, but I feel like when he met Naomi Watts and she started just acting so strongly, he was like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'll try doing something a little bit different here. And it it really, really pays off um, because the ending of this movie is spectacular. And I feel like the ending would not be as spectacular if we didn't have this comparison to how she started out in the beginning. And the range that she shows in this movie, like you said, Geneva, is it's it's truly incredible. Um, So, yeah, I, I am very upset that she did not even receive a nomination for this, but. Yeah, you know. that's insane. I did the not Academy she was, was I feel like the Academy was kind of anti David Lynch at the time slash they kind of always are, I feel like, in certain ways. He's a little too out there for a lot of people, but um yeah. So moving on a little bit, I just wanted to say in a it's just a funny note. Uh I think you can understand this, Geneva, because I think you're far enough into Twin Peaks to get it, but David Lynch's uh, obsession with coffee knows no bounds. (laughs) He just loves his coffee humor. Um, It is all over this movie. (laughs) I did not, that connection I had not made, but you're right. There's a lot of coffee in this movie. (laughs) He loves his coffee. I mean, they've got a whole gag where it's like a group of people sitting in this office trying to cast an actor and they're like, oh no, we'll get you better coffee this time. We promise. (laughs) The espresso must be just right. And then he spits it out onto a napkin. They're like, wait, no, we were told that this is the best imported coffee from blah 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 and there's all these different scenes in this movie with coffee but it's I feel like in this movie almost exclusively always used as like a humor uh as a comic relief sort of thing um but yeah David Lynch loves his coffee and uh I just think it's it's kind of like Quentin Tarantino and feet David Lynch has coffee 
Um, <laughs> wow. But I mean, I, that's I, that's, I that's don't my opinion. Say to that. <laughs> I I mean, directors have their things, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, I. <laughs> speaking of of humor i wrote a note down here of um the way he mixes horror with humor i there's this one scene that i actually totally forgot until i rewatched it this time but when that guy is in um that office talking with that other guy and then he shoots him then he accidentally shoots the lady in the oh, other that scene room. was hilarious she's like something bit me bad it's <laughs> like it's he's like, the no, worst assassin shot, ever like, every single move he makes is just makes things worse for him <laughs> he ends actually, up shooting three people instead of one he causes a fire <laughs> it actually made me think of indiana jones of how like he's the worst archaeologist <laughs> ever <laughs> like i mean he always accomplishes the mission but in right. the process he destroys so many artifacts <laughs> that are like probably should be preserved um <laughs> But and that mean no shade on Indiana Jones. Great movie. <laughs> yeah. Um how dare but you. yeah, this just made me think of that of how this is your job. You should not be destroying this many things <laughs> in the process. Like it's not that difficult. <laughs> but um yeah, and just her continuously just refusing to die, her being like, No, no, yeah, no, she no, almost no. gets him. She puts up a good fight. Good for she her. She really does. I just love how she thinks it's a bug bite. And it's like, lady, uh, you're you're bleeding. That's that's not a bug yeah. bite. That's called a bullet wound, my friend. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, speaking of more funny things, the first time I saw this movie, I almost jumped out of my seat. The cameo of Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus jump is, scare. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It I was not expecting that. I did not remember that. It, I didn't. Yeah, it's just, it's so outrageous. It's just, I feel like it's David Lynch being like, hey, let's add some more just ridiculous humor <laughs> to this. I wonder if Billy Ray Cyrus knew that he was going to be like a joke when he was cast in this role. Um, no idea. But yeah, the fact that he's always showing up and being like, hey, man, that's not how you talk oh, to your no. wife. Yeah. <laughs> Your wife doesn't deserve that. And then he just ends up like getting beat up by that huge bodyguard at some point with yeah. one punch. He just drops to the ground. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I still, no matter how many times I watch this movie, I cannot believe the billionaire Cyrus is in it. It's just, it's just too, I don't yeah. know. It's, it's too just weird so to funny me. how he comes home and they're both like sitting up in bed with the sheets, you know, over their middle just like they're waiting for him. And it's just yeah. like, who is she in bed with? Oh, Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> and then there's so this weird. part when the wife is is in the kitchen. She's upset. And he's like, hey, you know, your husband just found you in bed with another man. He's probably upset. And it's like, thanks, <laughs> Billy Ray. Thanks. <laughs> Which um, this also introduces us to Justin Thoreau's character, I guess. I mean, he's been introduced as a director and he's trying to cast a woman in his film and he's being told you have to cast you have to cast this woman and clearly he doesn't want to. Yeah, I think it's, it's not Diane. entirely clear, but it, it seems to be some sort of um like mob influence that yeah. you know, that you know, mob involvement with the studio where clearly these are sort of shadowy figures who have a lot of money and a lot of power and he does not understand that at first, <laughs> that this is no. not a um, not a suggestion. It is an order. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and the woman who they're asking him to cast is just another one of those interchangeable female faces that comes in this movie. There's kind of there's Diane, there's Betty, there's um Rita and then this other woman. I forget what her name is, but it's kind of these four names and these four faces. Camilla Rhodes. Kind of, yes. So these four names and these four faces are kind of almost interchangeable throughout the movie and they come in and out at different points. Um and I love I love that addition, but Introducing Justin Thoreau, I do have to say, I, this is a personal opinion. I think Justin Thoreau is very, very attractive. <laughs> um, even though he is supposed to be kind of a, a weirdo in this movie with his glasses and his spiked up hair, and he's I almost don't say kind a of weirdo as much as the kind of like typical Hollywood sleazebag director kind of thing. I don't know. He seems kind of dweeby to me. Um, but even so, I think he is a very good looking man, and also he's an extremely talented actor, and I think. I love seeing him kind of show off his comedic chops in this movie. And there's one line that he says that I almost used as my introductory line for this movie, which is when um, he's, oh crap, where is it? Where did I write? Oh yeah. When he's sitting down in the room and they're suggesting he casts this particular woman and they hand him this picture and he's like, what is this photo for? And they're like, blah, blah, blah. Why are you asking questions? And he goes, what is the photo for? <laughs> um, yeah, I just think he's he's funny in this movie and, and uh, he's a very talented actor. So I wanted to make sure we shouted out Justin Thoreau because he can get kind of forgotten in all of the the Naomi Watts and, and that side of things. But I think he's worth worth mentioning. So, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, and also something that I, I noted is just. I love I feel like this movie is pretty timeless in my opinion because in a lot of ways the way that it shot almost looks like it was made in the 70s or the 80s in my opinion um but there's certain aspects of it that are just like oh this movie is is very dated because you know they make references to daily papers like oh it wasn't in the daily paper and you know <laughs> there's lots of phone books there's reading of physical maps and all of these things which don't get me wrong I love a physical map I collect maps but it's not th these are not essential things that people use well, yeah, anymore like, i mean it, this movie is it's only about 20 years old a little i think a little over 20 years old but there's so much 2001 yeah it's it's it is fascinating to see basically this representation of kind of the hollywood how it functioned in the last few years in which it would function you know like the last few years before it would be going completely digital before everyone would be carrying around cell phones before appointments would be made over computers and um, people would have GPSs in their cars and you could Google someone's name or Google an accident and try and figure out, you know, um, what's out there on the internet. You know, all of these things are not present and that does give it a sort of timeless and yet also time capsule equality. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. Um, yeah, so let's let's move forward to my so I said my favorite sequence before is the old lady and the old woman sitting in the back of the taxi, which I stand by it. It's my favorite sequence or favorite moment. But my favorite scene in this movie is when uh when Betty goes to the actual um audition for her role. <sighs> oh my goodness. I, I don't even know how to begin talking about which is this scene. <laughs> sorry. Just to go back to 
our discussion of Naomi Watts, can you imagine if Naomi Watts had been cast in this role and she couldn't act? Like how differently oh, the scene yeah. would play if it was, yeah. you know, this person who couldn't act who was supposed to be putting on this performance that everyone's lauding as a transcendent performance. Like I, I think it would work, but it would be saying it would the movie would be very different, you know. But the fact yeah. is, she can act, and she puts on an, a transcendent performance oh, in her audition. So good. And yeah. it's so well, I mean, you know, I, I wonder if David Lynch changed the script at all when he realized what he had on his hands. But the way that you see her performing the scene in one way when she's practicing with Rita earlier. Yep. And it's kind of, you know, you can imagine you, you read the pa- the words on the page and that's how you think to play. I'm going you know, to tell my dad. Yeah, it's very theatrical. <laughs> it's very sort of, you know, it's very over the top. It's very kind of typical. And, and then, she even says, I think she's laughing and she's like, this yeah, is so stupid. She's like, this is so lame. She knows it is. So cliched. I cry, 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 blah, 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 blah. But then she goes in, into the the audition and the extremely creepy older man who's <laughs> her co-star wants to play it close up and she leans into it. And it's so funny how her co-star is like, acting is reacting. I'm all about reacting. Hmm. But it's, you know, she completely schools him on it because she's reacting to the situation, the circumstances that he's created. And, you know, she just is able to spin that into something that's completely original. And there's so much emotional truth to it. And it's, you know, it's weird and seductive and skeezy and, you know, unsettling. And yeah, and everyone just recognizes that immediately they're like this is a this woman has so much talent mm-hmm. and i think the audience is also discovering that about naomi Watts yes. at the same time totally yeah and i think i i love how this this scene where they're acting with each other is kind of jammed in between kind of some comedy a little bit because before all of this there's that whole scene where I mean because they all kind of laugh at the director right because he's clearly some bimbo who doesn't really know what he's talking (laughs) about because he says this line where he just says don't play it real until it gets real and everyone in the room is like um what (laughs) that doesn't mean (laughs) anything but yeah I just think that this this scene of I mean, I honestly think that the the man gives just as good of a performance here as Naomi Watts does, but because he doesn't have the 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 contrast that that Naomi Watts does of of she has these sequences where she's clearly very flat intentionally because that's how she's being directed, and then here she's so just she's so invested and she's so she just communicates the character with her whole body. He does that too, but because he doesn't also have the flatness to compare it to, it doesn't feel as dynamic. But I just think, I, I just think it's beautiful. I feel like this this sequence did not necessarily need to be in this movie. Like if it was taken out, it wouldn't wouldn't really matter. But I'm so glad that it's still still here. It's so the two of them are able to communicate an entire other film in and of itself. And all we're seeing is one short clip of it, but you can feel the whole story that, that it's just, that it just lives inside of. And, um, well, especially when you like, I mean, my interpretation of the movie, which, you know, is not the only interpretation that could be had, but for me, the, the whole first part of the movie, the, the idea of Betty and Rita and their adventures it's all the dream of Diane and this is Diane projecting, you know, creating this alternate persona of who she was when she first arrived in Hollywood and how her story could have played out. And so 
it just adds this interesting layer to me because this is the, you know, this is the the quintessential discovery story. You know, a woman moves to LA and she gives one incredible audition and then she's just hailed as the greatest actress ever. And, you know, she becomes a star, a star. And <laughs> so the idea then that this is all this sort of wish fulfillment projection of a, a, a you know, crazed by love dying woman um, is just really interesting because it, it adds this level of unreality to it even though it's also so real because there is a real actress who is playing this real scene and doing this phenomenal job. Um, yeah, I, I just, I find it really interesting to think about what this scene means within the larger context of the story. Yeah, I, like I said, I think that your interpretation is is super interesting because I never, I never thought about it in that sort of, uh, in that sort of way. So yeah, um, I feel like we need to talk about Rita a little bit because we haven't really discussed her all that much. But I feel like in the beginning, she's kind of just this person following Betty around because Betty's just saying like, let's do this. Let's go do this. Let's go do this. And she's just like, I don't remember anything. Don't go in there. OK, I'll follow you. Yeah, you know, she's this kind of wounded lamb, you know? Yeah, she's very passive. She's kind of just letting Betty do all of the things. Um Oh, we haven't even talked about the blue box with the, which I think is such a cool prop, by the way. I, I love the shade of blue that that is. I love how it's kind of this matte color. I love the size of it. I I love that prop of the blue box. I have no idea what it means, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't yeah. really have an, an interpretation yeah. of that. Well, and then it's connected a to a blue bit, key, maybe. and then the man is holding the blue box at the end, who's like b- behind the dumpster. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's but then the something the, there. The the box with the key, and the key is this really unusual shape. It doesn't look like a normal key. But then the, it also right. connects to the more normal looking key, but which is blue, which right. is the symbol that the assassin has carried out his his task. Um, which yeah, I I sort of have a vague know interpretation of that but maybe we can discuss that more when we get to the end yeah um but so I guess I don't know I don't have any specific things to say about Rita but I guess just some plot points with her are um I feel like for me I don't know and I don't know if this is true but knowing that this was initially written as a pilot for a tv series I can see how Initially, David Lynch maybe had this plan of, okay, this is going to start out as some mystery of who's this woman who was in this car crash and has this money and has lost her memory and she's making this friend and what's going on. But I feel like maybe the point when he was like, okay, this show's not going to get made, so let's make this something else. And then it really goes into dreamland. Once, um, once Rita puts that wig on, for me, is when things really start to just completely unravel into almost incomprehensible dream space. Um, and I, after she puts the wig on, you know, I think I think that's the point when the two of them have their sex scene after she has the wig and then she takes the wig off. And then um, Betty's like, I'm in love with you. I'm in love with you. I'm in love with you. Um and then Rita wakes up in the middle of the night and then she's like, I, I need to take you somewhere. And they go to this theater. I, 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 I wrote down so many times in my notes, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. This is my favorite. <laughs> 
But I also wrote down that this scene was my favorite. The the Yorando scene when the two of them go to this theater and this woman who I think I forgot to look this up, but I think she's like an actual famous um, musician. But she's I think so. Um, I could be wrong, but I feel like I remember reading that at some point. But she's singing this Yorando song. And I think it's so incredibly powerful. And I remember the first time watching this. I was weeping during this scene and I didn't even know why I was like, I don't even know what is happening. I mean, yes, the song is sad because I speak Spanish, so I can understand everything that she's saying. I was going to ask you actually, if you remember what the lyrics of the song were saying, because I, you know, I was watching this movie with subtitles on and the Mm -hmm. subtitles do not translate the words of the song. They don't even give the words of the song in Spanish. Yeah. Um, So so the title of the song is Yorando, and Yorando means crying. So I I mean, I can't think of the specific lyrics off the top of my head. If I had them, I'd translate. Maybe I could look them up and translate them. But it's it's a song that's saying, like, I, I have to look it up. But it's basically a woman singing tragically about um, about love and um hold on Geneva you talk I'm I'm gonna look this up if you want to talk about something yeah absolutely go ahead yeah actually just a teensy little easter egg but just that made me um very happy um that I thought was kind of interesting uh the character Rita you know she's an an amnesiac and she doesn't know her actual name so she gets her name Rita from a poster of Gilda starring Rita Hayworth and just a fun little um Easter egg is that Rita Hayworth was a, uh, I don't know if she was of Mexican descent, but she um, had been working, she was of kind of Hispanic descent, um, I think some Spanish heritage, and she had been living and working in Mexico for a long time when she dis- she was discovered, she was a dancer. Um, and when she came to Hollywood, she had to have this kind of makeover to make her look less Latina, basically. Um, mm. You know, kind of one of those classic you know, you need to be, you need to have this very sort of white look basically to be, to make it in Hollywood, you know, that kind of, um, kind of thing. But I just found that kind of an interesting little link because the, the woman who plays Rita is, I believe she is from, no, she's American, but I believe she's of Mexican heritage. And we find out later in the movie that the, the character is, um, if not Latina herself, like she, she speaks Spanish. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting little little nod to uh, Rita hmm. Hayworth's um, real life uh, story. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so I have the lyrics looked up here. Uh, I'm going to try and translate them in real Please. time as I'm reading this. Um, but it, it basically says, um, I was okay for a while beginning to smile again. Then last night I saw you. You took my hand and you said hello and you wished me well but you couldn't tell that i that i have been crying uh crying for your love or like crying over you crying over you crying over you then you said goodbye and i felt all of my pain i was alone and crying 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 it's not easy to understand uh that uh mm, it's not easy to understand that upon seeing you again, I started crying and I thought that I had forgotten you, but it's true. This is true that I love you more than before, much more than yesterday. Tell me that I can, uh, tell me that I can have you 
wait, dime, dime tu que puedo hacer. Um, I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> that you don't love me, that, oh, no, tell me, don't tell me that you can't be there. Don't tell me that you don't want me. Um, please tell me that you will always be there. I'm crying over you, crying over you. Your love, take me away all of my heart. I'm still crying, 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 yeah. crying, crying for your love. <laughs> so so it's a very it's a, sad song. <laughs> yeah, well, that's like, I was wondering if it was something like that because I think that's very thematically appropriate for uh, Diane's feelings for Camilla at the end of the movie is that she's... You know, she's in love with this woman who has left her and she feels alone and bereft and completely depressed. And yeah, it makes sense that that would kind of those feelings would show up in her dream in that way. So did this did this scene move you at all, not knowing what she was saying? And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is the first time I saw this, like I said, I was weeping like I was I was crying so hard and I was like I don't know why I'm crying but this is just uh, I I didn't cry this time because I've seen it before and and I'm still very moved by it but I wasn't sure for you since it's basically your first time watching it since you haven't seen it and sounds like you've blocked it out of your brain from the first time I remember them being in the theater uh but I did not remember the specifics of the the song yeah so d- did you experience any kind of strong emotion watching it this time? If you didn't, that's fine. I'm just curious. I mean, I, w- uh, I wasn't weeping. Um, I will say I was, you know, I, I was definitely. <laughs> it's okay. Most people probably aren't. <laughs> I, I was definitely feeling things, but it was kind of more like, you know, I was feeling things with the movie throughout. And then particularly as it gets toward the end and things become or heightened and more confusing, but also more intense, you know, it's kind of just feeling things the whole way through of like, these two women are just in this place where, you know, they're, things are kind of unraveling, and they're kind of clinging to each other. And there's so many mysteries that are going on around them. So it was kind of, yeah, just emotionally intense for that. I I, I was not weeping myself. Because <laughs> yeah. I was also part of me was wondering what she's saying. <laughs> I yeah. Yeah. I, I I wonder how much me understanding what she's saying, how, how much that changes well, I the think, experience. Well, I mean, the thing is, I really came away with it. Like if you had not read me those lyrics, honestly, that's what I would have guessed mm. they would have said okay. and I think a lot of that is just due to the performances of Naomi Watts and Laura Herring who plays Rita mm-hmm. and yeah. just the you know and the way that Lynch sets up the scene is you know you you can read all of these emotions that are they're co- going across their faces and how you know they're sort of feeling for this woman that they don't know it's singing a song in a language that they don't understand um like, I She's think such the, a good singer. Her voice yeah, oh, is, is beautiful. beautiful. Oh, my yeah. God. Like, I think it communicates all of the emotions, even if the specifics of the, which is, yeah. you know, representative of the movie overall. Repre- it communicates yeah. all these emotions and themes, even if the specific details of, you know, what exactly this means from moment to moment can't be understood. Yeah. You still get the idea. I love that connection. That's awesome. Um. So, yeah, moving on a little bit. Actually, wait, um, sorry. Just oh, yeah, go ahead. With that... Um, uh, with the club, I also found it really intriguing. The idea of you know the the Silencio Club, the the announcer who comes out. Silencio, Silencio, Silencio. <laughs> no hay bando, no hay cook orchestra. This is an illusion. Yes, well, it's this idea of the sound is all recording, and so these performers keep coming out, and they keep seeming like they're performing something, 
and then they stop and the recording keeps going. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it just plays yes. into these larger themes of, you know, kind of the the interchangeability, the idea yes. of that identity and the, the looks of someone become separated from their, you know, their soul in a sense. Um is just like you know the the performer comes out i i love this moment the performer is you know she sings yorando she sings this beautiful song which moves um the two characters to tears and then at the end she just stops singing and the recording keeps going and she just mm-hmm. drops down on the stage and it's mm-hmm. like this woman has given her heart out you know she mm-hmm. sung her heart out she's given her all she could be dead for all we know and yet the recording keeps going mm-hmm. you know it's this beautiful sort of like beautiful yeah, like that her art lives on without her and yet at the same time it's like this woman has been completely used up for her art and you know we're keeping and the music but and we're disposing of her. And it's almost like it's almost like Rita and Betty are crying because they know what this woman is doing. Like they know that she's going to die. They know that this is her swan song. Like they know that this is the last performance she's going to give and they're almost crying because it's so it's so beautiful but they know that this is the end and that's something that I'm just coming up with right now but it it almost feels like they know what's going to happen and they have a real connection with this woman who seemingly they've never met before but maybe they have we don't know um but yeah and so it's like even after she's dead the song the song still exists for them in their in their reality because just because she's gone doesn't mean that the song is gone doesn't mean that you know it doesn't continue on in their minds and that moment is not going to or that memory is not going to stick with them um yeah thanks for thanks for adding a few more thoughts there otherwise I would have moved on but I'm really glad we didn't move (laughs) on because I think I just forgot a lot of those yeah. other things that you well, mentioned because there's yeah. so much going on. It just really stood out to me because I thought, I feel like this is really significant to the, the themes of For what sure. this movie is doing. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful scene. I love it. And uh, yeah, I yeah, it's fantastic. So uh, move, moving on from this scene, this is when really things start to, I know I keep saying this is when reality starts to slip, but this is really when Rita and Betty start to kind of become the same person and then switch places and then become someone else. And who even are they? And I noticed that when the two of them are walking back to the, to the apartment from the opera house or whatever it is, as they walk into the house, they are perfectly synced up in the way that they walk. So it's like they're holding their hands the same way. Their feet are moving at the same pace. They step up the stairs at the same time. And so I feel like it's this beautiful direction and blocking of the actors where it's like they are the same. They, They are the same person. So it's like first her hair changed and now they're moving the same way. And, you know, it's just... It's this beautiful, um, there's so many different ways that films can communicate what's happening. And I love that even through something as simple as how they're walking, it's, it's adding more onto that, um, onto that storyline. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. So I guess the rest of this movie is kind of just a bunch of, uh, I don't, I don't want to call it chaos because that makes it sound, that sounds um, derivative or derogatory yeah. but well to me it's like there the movie stops and then the real movie begins in a sense which maybe I should just like like everything's been leading up to this yeah moment so for thing. me just to kind of lay all my cards out <laughs> interpretation <of> cards <laughs> yeah. out on the table for me this movie really made me think of the Wizard of Oz in the sense of so much of this movie 
it's a it's a, a dream within the reality and it's this one mind that is kind of playing out all her kind of hopes and wishes for how things had turned out um and she's plucking the characters from her real life and putting them into her dream so it's confusing because it's told in reverse we see the dream and then we see all the the influences and the things that went into creating that dream but so for me in the reality it is diane who came to hollywood as this sort of fresh-faced woman um you know hoping to make it big in the movies she doesn't have the talent she doesn't end up making it but she does fall into this relationship with camilla who is ends up being much more successful than her and they're in a relationship for a while but eventually camilla begins to cheat on her with her director and eventually decides for the sake of her career to be with this director and just very cruelly drops diane and diane is just hurt and stunned and furious and as she she arranges then for Camilla to be killed, and on the night when Camilla is killed, which she sees the deed has been done because there's a blue key on her table, um, she basically, out of grief and and regret and um, just sorrow, um, kind of goes insane and is chased by the visions of the people who. <laughs> Uh, greeted first greeted her to Hollywood and kills herself and yes to me that is the main narrative of the movie um there's a lot of stuff within that that I don't fully know how to add in for me the 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 guy behind the dumpster which we see again at the end as he's playing around with the blue box um and then those those two old people that old couple like all out of the box and they're tiny and it's very strange it's so cool <laughs> yeah again to me and that's kind of their like, little like wee, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's great yeah to me that's kind of just a sort of um symbol you know kind of an uh abstract abstract symbol of the rottenness of hollywood in general and he's kind of playing around with this box which kind of holds the the dreams of hollywood and how they've turned rotten and you know, releasing these kind of um, figures, which are sort of the, the symbol of how quickly the sort of brightness of it can turn to creepiness and darkness. And so, yeah, like it's, I don't know, to me, it, it's very much a sort of, um, yeah, Wizard of Oz, um, here's the reality, and then I'm going to turn it into this, this dream that represents everything that I wanted for, want for my life. Um, and yeah, everything that's kind of motivating me and everything that I'm afraid of and everything that I want. So, yeah. I feel like <laughs> I feel like after hearing you say all of that, yeah. anything that I say is just going to sound stupid um, <laughs> because I feel like you I don't is, know if is, I'm interpreting this correctly. Well, be... I don't think there is a correct way to yeah, interpret exactly. it, but I think that yours sounds a lot more intelligent than mine does <laughs> because for for me, it's just kind of like, I hear what you're saying and I see your perspective and how you got there. But for me, I feel like at the end of the day, it is, I, I don't know. I feel like it's not supposed to make sense. And I feel like it is a dream. And I feel like there's little hints here and there that remind you of, okay, whatever you think you think is going on 
is not actually happening. And let me sprinkle in these things to remind you that you don't have it all figured out. And I think that one of those things is in that dinner scene where, um, where everyone's at the dinner table and Betty, who's now become Diane and, and, you know, Rita, who I don't even think is called Rita anymore. She's is Mila, with, who was the, right. the blonde woman in the, exactly. the first part. Yeah, exactly. But it's like during that scene, we have the cowboy walking across the back of the mm-hmm. room for like no reason at all. Why is he even there? Why was he even there in the first place? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and and then the same woman that Rita has now become Camilla, like the the original Camilla walks up to Justin Thoreau's character and is like whispering in his ear. And then and then the end with with, like you said, the old people. I hate to call them old. It just sounds so mean for me to call them the old people, but the elderly couple yes. <laughs> and they're kind of like these little people that are squeezing through the underneath of the door. And then you see this, this, I don't even, the man behind the dumpster, I don't even call him a man. He's like, he's just a, he's just a, a being. We don't even know who or what that is. Yeah. He's kind of, kind of sitting there toying with this blue box that like, we think we know what it is, but we can't really be sure and so I just feel like David Lynch is playing with our minds in the sense of he's giving us he's giving us maybe maybe an understanding of okay this could be what this movie is about but he's also in my opinion very clearly being like everything that you think you know is not actually what's happening here because because you forgot about this and you forgot about this and you forgot about this and if you really think about these things None of this, like all of this is just, yeah. it's just, it's just a stream of consciousness that like what happens in a dream, all of a sudden it's like, wait, why am I in this place? And this person's here again. Oh, I forgot that that person was in the dream a little, you know, it's just, and I think, I don't know, I, I guess, I, I guess in a way I'm refusing to accept your interpretation because not, not in a negative way, not that yours is illegitimate, but the reason why this movie is so special to me is because, in my opinion, it does something so different from what any other movie I've ever seen has ever done, which is that it so perfectly captures what dreams are like. This movie, in my opinion, is not meant to be real. It's not meant to be understood. It's not meant to be this is the plot and this is how it starts. The beginning, the middle, the rising action, the falling action, like it's not supposed to be that. It's literally supposed to be this is you just in a dreamland and no other movie, in my opinion, at least that I've seen, is able to do that. And that's why this is so special to me. It takes me to a place that I've never been. And I feel like your interpretation takes me to a place that I have been before and so because of that, I refuse to accept it for, for myself because it kind of, it takes away the beauty of the film for me. Um, and so, which it kind of feels like someone telling me that Santa Claus isn't real. It's like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, don't tell, you know, let me believe in my fantasy. Stop trying to like, not, not that that's what you're doing. I don't think you're trying to like you know, be like Tatum, I'm right. Yeah. Get out of your head. You, and listen you to what enjoy I'm it but, for when it's an experience and not something that exactly. is intended for interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the reason why that is the core reason why I love this movie so much. Yes. The acting, the direction, the lighting, the sound design, the editing. Yes. Everything else about this movie is fantastic, but I've seen good lighting. I've seen good acting. I've seen good scores. I've seen all of these things. The thing that makes this different 
is that just the very nature of what this movie is, is a dream in, in a way that no other movie has been able to be. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, yeah. that's why I love it. And I 100% appreciate your perspective. It's, <laughs> it's really, it's really interesting for me to hear the way that you interpret it. And frankly, I'm not surprised <laughs> that we have these different interpretations given what I know about both of our brains and the movies that we like. Um, yeah. Well, it is just so interesting for me because it's like, I did not come away with any of that the first time I watched it. And then this time around, mm. it was so strong. I had this, I just mm-hmm. had this really strong sense of like, you know, I, again, I am not saying this is the correct interpretation because there isn't one. And also not everything lines up with, you know, within it. Like I, I don't fully know what to do with, um, Justin Thoreau's storyline like to what extent is that a dream or not within reality within in my interpretation like I don't know um, but yeah I just had this really strong sense of sort of what the Diana's narrative being Diane's narrative being a single narrative that um, really worked and, and I really um, yeah I found a lot of meaning out of and I I don't know I'm I'm no art historian I don't know a huge amount about (laughs) painting but like isn't that what surrealist art kind of is is supposed to be is it's it's creating something that is intentionally baffling with the hope that you know as you the the meaning that you get out of it is through your attempt to create attempt to interpret or attempt to create meaning and it's very personal to each you know to each viewer um so it's kind of, you know, your <laughs> choose your own adventure in a sense. Exactly. Yeah. Have, yeah. Have you ever seen, by the way, this is completely random, but um, have you ever seen the, the you probably have because you went to film school, um, Un Chien Andalou, the, the mm-hmm. French short oh, film. From, oh, yeah. yeah. I think okay. like the very first film class. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, okay, we're going to watch Un Chien Andalou. And yeah. I was like, okay. okay. <laughs> um, yes, I have seen it. Many times. I think we were required to watch it in like three of my phone classes. (laughs) Yes, I've seen it. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I have one more thing that I want to mention. um, And then I guess we can get into like the final thing here, unless you have anything else that you would like to say closing out. Nope. Okay, cool. So one last thing I just wanted to mention from the movie itself was um, because I kind of, I guess I briefly mentioned how, the editing in this is great. The lighting is great. The score is great. The acting is great. The directing is great. The blocking, like everything about it is great. Um, but one of my favorite shots in this movie is there's this shot. What? <laughs> sorry, kids that are listening. Hopefully there aren't kids listening to this. But but the scene where um, where Betty, I guess, who's now Diane, where she's like masturbating on her couch. There's this incredible shot where the camera is like her yes, point of view. So she's like crying but blinking. And it, oh, her it, eyes are think, going in and out of focus. You can see it. Yes. Yeah. But also when it is in focus, like it, you can tell that she's crying, like it, it's blurry. You can't. Oh, and and I, I think that that is just so creative. And I love how this film it's at some times we're observers. And then at other times we are in the mind of whoever the person's mind we should be inside of at that moment, mm-hmm. like whether it's the guy sitting in the diner's mind or Diane's mind or the dead woman on the bed's mind who may or may not be whoever. Like, I just think that that particular shot is, um, I just think it looks, I think it looks great. And, uh, it's one of those things where 
I don't, I mean, when I was little and I was making movies, I would kind of like, if I wanted to get a shot with blinking, I'd kind of put my fingers over the lens and open them and close them like that. <laughs> but amazing. this is done in a way, you know, it's, it's way better and it actually looks cool. Um, but yeah, I just loved, I loved that shot, uh, which I guess just further emphasizes how good the, just the camera work is in this and everything about this movie from top to bottom. Yeah. It's just so good. Um, I guess one other thing, and this is a very, very stupid thing, but it's just a thought that I had while watching um, the interiors of the two sort of major apartments in this movie. So there's mm-hmm. Aunt Ruth's apartment. This is gorgeous, yeah. gore- absolutely gorgeous, like classic sort of California um, kind of Mexican influence. Um just you know it's absolutely beautiful i was just drooling while they were going through this apartment it's like this gorgeous but then they go to um diana selwyn diane selwyn's apartment um which i found such a fascinating location because it's this walled off apartment complex in the middle of la and yet the in the inside of this apartment complex is this sort of english style kind of tudor you know brick and what is it bottle and mortar i forget what the exact the the style is but you know this kind of like old wooden dark wooden beams and the white sort of um uh i don't know what you call it in between and the interior like it's very english um in style and i mean you know it's like completely fake because this is the middle of los angeles which is a desert town but um, I just found that choice really interesting. And I was wondering why that choice was made, what it signified. And also, even though... A dream. <laughs> it's a dream. <laughs> it's all a dream. <laughs> and also, you know, I think the idea is that Diane's apartment is kind of, you know, dingy. Like, this is the place that she died. You know, it's uh, kind of depressing. But I was just looking at it. I was like, I want to live there. <laughs> it looks so mm. cool. Yeah. So, anyway. Also... That sequence when they're trying to break, when Betty and and Rita are basically breaking into Diane's house and and Mm -hmm. they find the dead body in there or whatever. And then the neighbor is like, I'm going to come with you to get my stuff. And the phone rings. She goes back. And then we get a call back to that scene later. And the neighbor is knocking on the door and Rita has now become Diane. And the Mm -hmm. neighbor is like, I want my stuff back. You know, I just, yeah, it's It's great. Yeah. Well, and just the the really quick but such good place setting um you know we see that scene we see the neighbor is getting her stuff and then she specifically goes back and grabs this one distinctive ashtray that looks like a piano right and she leaves Mm -hmm. but then it cuts to um not rita diane and camilla um on the on the couch and they're making out and it it pans over to the table and the ashtray is back there. And it's just quick little, you know, detail that is supposed to indicate to us, I think um, that a time jump has happened and that we've, uh, uh, this is a flashback. We've gone back in time. Um, Anyway. Yeah. I, I love your interpretations. They're so different (laughs) from mine. (laughs) Um, But yeah, okay, moving on, because this episode's way longer than I thought it was going to be. But, you know, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, so I guess it deserves a long conversation. Um, Also, this movie's two and a half hours long, which, like, it does not feel long to me (laughs) at all. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. No. The movie was over, and I was like, how was that two and a half I would say two, which is probably maybe not the intent, but it really made me want to go back to L.A. A lot of (laughs) scenes. 
lot of the locations, I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing houses like that. You know, I remember seeing streets like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I love, I love seeing things set in LA, having now spent time in LA and yeah, yeah. it's just, you know, brings you back to a, an earlier time. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on to how this movie was received outside of how it was received by me and Geneva. Yes. Um, <laughs> so this movie currently has an 86 on Metacritic, which is a very high score, and it is 85% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which is also a very high score. So Very curious um, what the um, the 15% who are giving negative reviews, were they like... <laughs> This movie didn't make any sense. Like, what was the argument against this They probably movie? just didn't get it in my... Like, there's a lot of people that just don't get David Lynch. And that's that's fine, I guess. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned before, the only nomination for this movie was Best Director for David Lynch. Which, did he deserve it? Yes. But also, did a million other things in this movie deserve Oscar nominations? Yes. Uh, Naomi Watts was robbed, and uh, I will carry that with me to my grave. Um, so I found two critic reviews that I enjoyed. One of them is kind of a little bit humorous. And then the second one is expertly written by none other than Roger Ebert. Um, but the first one comes from Time and it's written by Richard Corliss. And just a little, um, excerpt from it says, viewers will feel as though they've just finished a great meal, but aren't sure what they've been served. Behind them, the chef smiles wickedly, <laughs> I love that. which I think is very, very accurate. And uh, I feel like David Lynch definitely smiles wickedly when he thinks about <laughs> uh, people watching this and having no idea what it was. I don't um, know if wickedly is the right term, though. I would, I, I don't know, gleefully maybe or mischievously? I don't know. Like I, could still I could see David Lynch smiling wickedly. <laughs> but um, yeah. And then the next review comes from Roger Ebert. And this excerpt says... This is a movie to surrender yourself to. If you require logic, see something else. Mulholland Drive works directly on the emotions, like music. Individual scenes play well by themselves as they do in dreams, but they don't connect in a way that makes sense. Again, like dreams. The way you know the movie is over is that it ends. And then you tell a friend, I saw the weirdest movie last night. Just like you tell them you had the weirdest dream. Sounds like Roger that, Ebert definitely vibes with your experience of the film. Yes, which is why I love this review. Because one, I think it's very well written. And two, I think I had a very similar experience watching this movie that seemingly he did as well. Um, so yeah, regarding just like the legacy of this film, I think I mentioned earlier that for me, I consider this to be David Lynch's magnum opus. I think this is kind of the best thing he's ever made um, because from top to bottom, every department, every everything I think is is top, top notch. Um, and I think a lot of other people other than myself think the same. So um, yeah, this is a movie that lots of people still go back to today. Like Geneva and I kind of talked about before, in certain ways, it's very timeless and I think it's very telling that whenever you look up movies online of just like top horror movies or top thrillers or top jump scares, this movie is very, very, very often found on those lists. Um, this movie is beloved by many and uh, just appreciated for how unique it is compared to other movies that have come out. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of explained before the things that have really stuck with me Um 
with this film and what kind of just solidified it in my heart and mind, but, or should I say soul? <laughs> I feel like my soul <laughs> is a better word. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to kind of call back to them briefly, the scene or the shot of the elderly couple sitting in the back of that taxi, I will always love it. I think it's creepy as hell, but it's also amazing. Um, I love the sequence with uh, the Yorando song in the opera house. And the last one is the scene with uh, with Betty acting, uh, doing her audition. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. yeah, those those three scenes are my favorites. And those are the things that really just solidified this movie for me of this is one of my favorite movies of all time and uh, just showed me something new that I've never seen before. So, yeah, uh, Geneva, is there anything for you that's going to kind of stick with you or something that really... Um, moved you in some way shape or form honestly I feel like you you kind of stole my top three as well (laughs) kind of the same (laughs) definitely the couple in the car definitely our audition scene I will say just both sequences with the man creature behind the dumpster um Mm, mm -hmm. once I had gotten over the initial shock and trauma (laughs) not knowing what to expect when that happened um I just find that to be such a creepy cool idea like I I really love the idea that this man who is more or less unconnected with the larger action in the movie or any of the other characters is somehow sensitive to this horrific sort of rot that lies at the heart of Hollywood and is kind of supernaturally drawn to it and it ends up killing him which you know one interpretation of what happens not the only interpretation but it's just an idea that I find really creepy and cool you know like yeah I just I really love that that this sort of horrific creature is just lying there and sort of you know holding all of these characters um you know metaphorical sort of dreams and mysteries and desires and thoughts and everything yeah i i think it's really cool yeah and kind of uh i think we mentioned this earlier i love how that particular character is used in such a smart way to set the tone for the rest of the movie because it automatically gives you this uneasy feeling mm-hmm. and throughout the copious amounts of shots throughout the rest of the film of the camera slowly moving around a corner you always have that memory in your mind and David Lynch refuses to let you to forget it because he keeps using that same shot over and over of cameras going around corners and I just love how that character is used to just I don't know one one short brief jump scare influences the entire way that people process the rest of the movie. So yeah. Um, okay, cool. So that I guess concludes our Mulholland drive episode. Um, I, this was so fun, but I'm also sad that yeah. we don't get to talk about it again. Cause I mean, I we can movie. talk about it some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Geneva and I can talk about this whenever we want, but you guys can never listen to us talk about it ever again. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, Geneva, do you want to tell us what movie we'll be talking about next week? Yeah, next week we're going to be talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I am I don't believe that Tatum has not seen, and but we'll find out. I'm very excited to <laughs> show it to her and yeah, look forward to that conversation. Yeah, so thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're so excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.